We're at uh, the safe house where we're staying in Kabul. You can hear a loud siren in the background. That's because there was just a fairly significant explosion. We're standing on the roof. We can see a plume of smoke above a building in the distance. It's nighttime here. It's about five to eight. Welcome to Afghanistan. It's August 3rd, 2021 our first night in Kabul. We were there to cover the withdrawal of U.S. troops after 20 years in Afghanistan. Suddenly, it was like the Afghan government had lost its insurance policy. The Taliban had begun a lightning-fast offensive across the country. In the capital, they started an assassination campaign. This car bomb went off outside the house of the acting defense minister. He wasn't killed, but... It was a calling card. Standing there on the roof in the dark, we hear something else. I'm not sure if you can hear right now, but the city is literally echoing with the cries of people. They're chanting, Allahu Akbar, which means God is the greatest. But in this context, they're, they're chanting it across the city as an affirmation of support for the Afghan security forces. I don't think I've ever heard anything like this in my time in Afghanistan. It's surreal. It's dark up here on the rooftop and I can't see anyone. But all around I can just hear their voices echoing across the city. It's a powerful symbol of defiance. The people of Kabul literally crying out that they don't want the Taliban. I'm Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent. For more than 15 years, I've been reporting on conflict, terrorism, on the unequal battles between the powerful and the powerless. I've witnessed a lot of tragedy, but also great acts of courage. That night, it was like a call to arms, a last desperate rallying cry. But it came far too late. The Taliban would be in control of Kabul just 10 days later. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. It's a heartbreak. It's the worst heartbreak of my life. I'm concerned for my daughters and all the girls of Afghanistan. I don't want history to repeat itself on them very brutally. America's presence in Afghanistan was always polarizing. To some, the U.S. occupation was responsible for 20 years of war, arbitrary detentions, corrupt and ineffective government. But for many others, especially women and people living in urban areas, the country had become a better place since the Taliban had been ousted after 9-11. More tolerant, more connected to the outside world, with a vibrant, independent media. Now, two decades later, those gains hang by a thread. The Taliban are back. Afghanistan is just the latest stage for a struggle that's playing out around the world. A struggle where basic freedoms, the sort that we perhaps take for granted, are not just under threat, they're being snuffed out ruthlessly. 
the new autocrats hold sway in Russia, Myanmar, Nicaragua, in fact, in dozens of countries. I read a report recently that said that just one in seven people now live in a true democracy. No question, authoritarians are on the rise. But a new generation of resistance is also emerging, fighting for its rights, unwilling to give up hope for the future. Over the next six episodes, I'll take you around the world to witness this struggle up close. I'll meet those risking everything to cling to their freedoms, and I'll confront those in power who are trying to silence them. This is Tug of War, Episode 1, Afghanistan. It's August 5th, 2021, less than two weeks before the fall of Kabul. From the capital, we travel to Kandahar, Afghanistan's second largest city and the spiritual homeland of the Taliban. If Kandahar falls, then Kabul becomes very vulnerable. The Taliban have closed in on the city. It's basically surrounded. With American troops leaving, Afghan soldiers are now on their own, and they cannot afford to lose this fight. I'm sitting in the back of an armored vehicle. I'm wearing a helmet and a bulletproof vest. The Afghan military has offered to take our crew to the front lines in the west of the city. The minute we arrive, we hear gunfire going off in the compound. This used to be a wedding hall. Now it's the front line position. Apart from the sound of gunfire, it's eerily quiet in this former ballroom. There are banquet chairs stacked up in the middle, coated in thick layers of dust. The soldiers tell us that just across the street, Taliban snipers are hiding in civilians' homes and firing at the commandos day and night. The men want to show us something on the roof. So you can actually see the Taliban flag just over on the mountaintop there. They're in those houses. Snipers. Let's go back down. Very dangerous. Yeah, I get it. Very dangerous here. But talking to the soldiers, I don't really sense their fear or anxiety. Instead, they seem pretty relaxed. They say they're confident that they'll be able to hold the line against the Taliban. How do you feel about the way the U.S. forces are leaving? We face some problems, their uh, air strike, air supports, but uh, this is our uh, country. We have to protect it. The Taliban have already taken much of the province and they're making gains around the city every day. But these soldiers are seemingly assured how quickly things would change. The Taliban has taken two more major prizes as their advance accelerates. Just a week after our visit to Kandahar, the city fell. I wondered what had happened to those soldiers, so sure they could beat back the Taliban. I messaged one of them on WhatsApp and asked, what happened to you? He replied right away, we left. 
The fall of Kandahar was, to many Afghans, a haunting reminder of how the Taliban came to power in the 1990s. Out of nowhere, it seems, a mystery army of Islamic fundamentalists calling themselves the Taliban has swept with lightning speed through this country right into this capital, Kabul. The Taliban's version of Sharia in the 90s was medieval. There were violent public punishments. Here's what one Taliban governor told CNN at the time. We're trying to form the same government the Prophet Muhammad established 1,400 years ago, and we will do it. The Holy Quran says whenever you catch a thief, cut off his hand and execute a murderer. It's God's order. Women lost almost all of their rights. They were forced to cover themselves in burqas from head to toe. They couldn't go to school or to work. They were married young and basically treated like property. People who lived through it still remember how scary it was. I don't remember anyone we met in Kabul at that time being happy. That's Sharzad Akbar. She's the head of Afghanistan's Independent Human Rights Commission. We're at her office in Kabul. She tells us she was just a child when the Taliban took over. People panicked. People tried to flee Afghanistan. And everyone who was left there had no no hope of a better future. Everything seemed bleak. Sharzad remembers how simple pleasures were stifled. I loved reading novels. And they weren't as accessible as they were before because Taliban were pro-religious books, but not much else. We were always nervous when we were listening to music, even at home. All I remember is all the, all the things I couldn't do and we couldn't do. Now, Sharzad feels that sense of suffocation again as the Taliban sweep through one province after another. When we meet, the Taliban are just a few miles from Kabul. And it just came too quick. And it just, I'm caught by surprise. Do you feel like the Taliban might come back again to Kabul now? Are you prepared for that? I don't know what prepared really means. For the past 20 years, not just me, millions of Afghans, we have, we have tried to chart a different path for ourselves and where possible for our country and for our people. For sure, life in Afghanistan was not perfect. But for a woman like Sharzad, the previous 20 years had seen real progress. Women could be educated and work. They could walk down the street without a male companion. Now she fears those hard-won freedoms are about to evaporate. It's the worst heartbreak of my life, is what I'm experiencing now. I have lost my father. I have lost close friends to violence. I have lost um, colleagues. And I have experienced a lot of heartbreak. Uh, This is just a different level of heartbreak. You're making me emotional, sorry. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I'm so tired as well. Sorry, forgive me. Mm. I'm sorry. No, but it is. Like, it's it's heartbreak, as you say. Um, So... Do you know a lot of people who are leaving the country now? Yes, and I never thought I'd do this, but I have been encouraging people to leave. No woman's life is going to be better. I mean, yes, you know, hopefully the bloodshed would stop. But Afghan women deserve more. 
They deserve to live, not just to survive. And in any scenario that I can imagine, it's just going to be survival, at least for a while. I want to know if time has changed the Taliban, if the fears of someone like Sharzad are justified. The group says it's more mature and pragmatic than before. But is that really true? To answer that question, we drive 100 miles from Kabul to Ghazni province to meet a man called Malavi Kamal. He's the Taliban governor for the province. He's sitting on the floor of the mosque with an AK-47 by his side, surrounded by other Taliban members. A lot of people are concerned that if the Taliban takes power again, women's rights will move backwards, that there will be a a sort of return to this very medieval interpretation of Sharia law. How can you guarantee that women's rights will be protected? I would tell you and to the entire world that uh, we will give the women rights uh, according to Sharia law. In other words, according to the Taliban's very strict interpretation of Islamic law. That night, we stay over in the home of a local Ghazni family. When we arrive, our hosts are getting ready for dinner. The girls go around washing everybody's hands. They pour the water over your hands above a silver bowl. The house we're in is sort of structured as a compound within a compound. The internal ring is just for women and children. A lot of the women in these areas hardly ever leave the compound, which is difficult for someone in the West to wrap their head around. But here, it's a way of life. After dinner, I try to chat with the women and children. How old are you? Kem Omrik? Atta. Atta? Show me. Eight. You're eight. And how old are you? Five? It's a slightly strange scene because I don't speak any Dari or Pashto. And everyone's being very lovely and welcoming, but it is a little tricky to communicate. Women here lead busy lives, raising many children and feeding the whole family. Their day starts at 4.30 with the Fajr dawn prayer. Then they bake bread, make tea, sweep the courtyards, look after the children and the livestock. Just then, a man walks in. He's young, in his early 20s, and he's wearing glasses and a turban. Your husband? She's my mother. Oh, you speak English? Oh. Mashallah. This is your mother? Yes. Oh my gosh, you look so young. <laughs> Mashallah. His name is Sibatala, and he tells me he works at a gas station. To my surprise, I learned that Sibatala's mother is about the same age as I am. 40? 40, no. Same as me. You I'm have 10 you. children. I have two. (laughs) He says that this is a Taliban town, and people are happy here now that the Americans have left. One of his brothers is a fighter with the group. In fact, in many rural areas, the Taliban have a lot of support. They're seen as being able to deliver swift, if brutal, justice, unlike the Afghan government, which is crippled by corruption. Taliban... The government drops bombs and creates trouble. Where there are Taliban, there is no trouble. 
Now that the Taliban are here, there's security. No bombs, no airplanes, no tanks. After years of fighting, many Afghans just want the war to stop. It doesn't matter who's in charge, as long as people aren't dying anymore. And if the Taliban can bring that, then that's good enough. In terms of education, Sabatala tells me only boys get to go to regular school. Girls just go to religious school. The girls, your sisters, yes. will they go to school? No. No? Why? Taliban. Taliban. This, this is not good. Go to the school. It's mm. not good. Mm. A lot of Afghan women outside the big cities have never known individual freedoms, education, or careers. And talking to them, I get the sense that they don't even really think about such things. Their lives are prescribed before they're even teenagers. It's mostly women like Sharzad Akbar in cities like Kabul who go to university and who have jobs and who are now so fearful of what will happen to them as the Taliban close in on Kabul. The insurgents have taken up to 10 regional capitals and are closing in on more. The terror group now has 15 provinces in their control. The Taliban are now thought to control two-thirds of the country only weeks after the complete withdrawal of the American troops. U.S. intelligence sources are now predicting that Kabul will be surrounded by Taliban forces in 30 to 60 days. But that will prove hopelessly optimistic. When we come back... They're just chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. The Taliban march into Kabul. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. On the morning of August 16th, 2021, Kabul wakes up to a new reality, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. In a matter of hours, with hardly a shot fired, the Taliban had taken over the capital. President Ashraf Ghani had fled into the night. As soon as we step out onto the streets, it's clear that the Taliban are in charge. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. The mood on the street is tense, but also oddly celebratory. Taliban fighters basking in their victories stand around. 
People come up to them and ask for selfies and take photographs. Uh, can I ask you how it feels to be standing here in front of the U.S. Embassy? We are very happy and very excited uh, that we have the victory. The crowd starts chanting Allahu Akbar, which means God is greatest. Some of them are also shouting Amarg al-Amerika. They're just chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. Many in Kabul, though, are just in shock, unable to process their new reality. Actually, I feel nothing right now. We want peace. Uh, We are tired of uh, this uh, ongoing war. What does the future look like to you now? You know, uh, I cannot predict even in seconds right now, uh, and I can't predict even minutes right now. Uh, so that's why I don't know what will, uh, uh, what will happen tomorrow and what will happen after. Others are panicking, petrified at the prospect of Taliban rule. Yesterday I have lost everything. Like I, I don't feel secure in here. You're afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid from everything. This is the big, big problem for us. It's a strange feeling to be one of the very few women walking around. Just last week, women in Kabul were out and about, going to work, to the market. Today, though, many of them are staying home, too afraid to go out, waiting to see what tomorrow will bring. We walk past a beauty salon. Yesterday, there were pictures of women's faces outside the store, but today, Those pictures have been hurriedly painted over, the women's faces erased. In a market, we come across a burqa store. We approach the vendor who's standing in front of racks filled with identical gray-blue burqas. Hi, salam alaikum. Hi, how are you? How are sales? Are you selling a lot of burqas at the moment? Yeah, it was good, but now it's more more sales now. Much better now. Why do you think you're selling more burqas right now? Because the Taliban took over and all the women are afraid. So that's why they are all coming and buying burqas. The thing is, the Taliban haven't even issued any official directives yet. But in a sense, they don't have to. Already, people, especially the older generation, are policing their own behavior. The memory and the fear of the old Taliban is still clear in their minds. August 18th, day three of Taliban rule. Okay, she's not answering. Hold on. Hi, Fauzia. It's Clarissa from CNN. We are... I think very close to your home. I think I might have found your house, but can you tell me what color your gate is? Yeah, it's gotta be there where the Taliban were. Fauzia Kofi has been fighting for women's rights since the Taliban first came to power in the 1990s. She's a member of parliament and a delegate for the Afghan government in peace talks with the Taliban. Or rather, she was. Hi. How are you? It's so nice to meet you. you. Oh my gosh, how are you doing? 
Kufi is basically under house arrest, and there are several Taliban fighters standing outside her gate. They search my bag before letting me in. There's Taliban fighters outside your door. What are they doing there? I haven't really communicated with them. They have been here for two days. We haven't asked them. Um, I don't know why they are there outside. Kufi knows the Taliban, particularly after the time she spent across the table from them at peace talks. I want to know what she thinks about the claims they keep making that this time around will be different, that they'll be more inclusive and tolerant, that women will be treated better than before. I have seen and I have heard reports that in some provinces uh, they do not let women go out without burqa. They do not let women go out without male companion. So I think they have to really make sure that they assure people that they have changed in practice, not in word. Do you believe they've changed? From what I see, it's very hard to trust. But Kufi doesn't think the future of Afghanistan will be decided solely by the Taliban. They still have to contend with the people they're ruling, especially in Kabul, which is not their home turf. I know for sure that we will resist any oppression that will take Afghanistan back to where it was 20 years back. And they are resisting. In the weeks since the Taliban takeover, small groups of women took to the streets to demand the right to work and to go to college. They risked whips and sticks to make their voices heard. I have been claiming this for years now that Afghanistan is transformed. And when I say transformed, it's not about the school buildings that I'm talking about, the infrastructure that we have managed to build, but it's about this generation transformation. I don't think anybody will be able to oppress those women to stay home. But already, so many Afghans are voting with their feet, desperate to leave the country. After the break, chaos at the airport. Welcome back to Tug of War. I'm Clarissa Ward. The Taliban want to show that they can provide law and order, but they also understand that a lot of people are very frightened of them, which is why they've issued a blanket amnesty essentially saying there will be no retribution for people who spoke out against them in the past or who worked with the Americans. But a lot of people don't buy that promise. So as soon as Kabul falls, they panic. Thousands flock to the airport, hoping to get on an evacuation flight before it's too late. The streets around the airport are now completely choked with traffic, and there are huge crowds of people lining up, pushing, pleading to try and get inside. Let me try to explain to you the situation where we are. It's very hectic. You can probably hear those gunshots. We're about 200 yards, even less than 200 yards away from the entrance to the Kabul airport. Uh, There are Taliban fighters all around. Just here, the gunfire is pretty much constant. The Taliban have been tasked with providing security outside the airport, so they've set up checkpoints all around. And they're trying to keep the crowds back, firing shots into the air. They're wielding truncheons and whips, 
apparently trying to keep order. As I'm reporting live on CNN's morning show, a big crowd gathers around me. And most of these people, let me ask you, sir, are you waiting here to get out or what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, the most of the people they're crowded in here, yeah. they're working with the Americans. Right. They all have the documents for the recommendations, everything. Right. The Joe Biden, every day they announce, yeah. we take him to the America. But they are liars. So, so and what's this, your message to America right it's now? It's our message to America. We help the American people. So that's their jobs to help now, right now here. There's a very bad situation if someone... More and more people come forward. They flash green cards, their emails, their visas, hoping desperately that their pleas will be heard by the U.S. government. Honestly, it's hard for me to look them in the eye because I don't have any answers for them. We cross the street to get closer to the Taliban checkpoint. A couple of fighters notice us and start coming towards us. One of them is visibly upset, and he doesn't want to talk to a woman. Can I ask you a question? Excuse me? He says first... Cover my face? Cover. Cover my face. He told me to cover my face before he would even talk to me. I notice that the fighter appears to be high. He's chewing something, I don't know what, and his eyes are glazed. He's sort of revved up in a way that makes it really difficult to have a normal conversation with him. He starts cursing America. My Afghan colleague, Najibullah Qureshi, who we call Naj, warns me to back off. Suddenly, things escalate. The Taliban fighter pushes forward through the crowd. He's taken the safety off his weapon and he's holding it up in the air. Close, stay behind him, stay behind him, stay behind him. My producer Brent Swales yells at me to watch out. We decide to leave and head for the car, but suddenly another two fighters come running towards us. One of them raises his rifle butt in the air. He's about to strike Brent. Brent ducks down to protect his head. Eventually, Naj is able to calm them down, and they back off. We escape. But let's get to the car now. Everyone attacking on you. That's nervous laughter. But later, Naj tells us we could have been killed. Even now, when I think about what happened, I feel a pit in my stomach. Less than a week after their takeover, the Taliban are already showing their true colors. And local journalists get it much worse, with severe beatings and whippings. The idea that Taliban rule can cope with dissent, that any of the old freedoms will survive, is fading fast. As the week draws on, it's getting increasingly difficult for people to leave the country. There are no civilian flights and few safe ways of getting into the airport. Americans are being urged to leave immediately, and that includes us. We make a plan to try to leave on Friday and get on one of the evacuation flights that the U.S. has been organizing. 
We call our translator Shafi to see if he wants to try his luck and come with us. Shafi used to work for the U.S. military. He'd applied for a visa but never heard back. The U.S. just left us behind. We stood with them. We thought that, that we will get our democracy, the freedom, the education, but recently everything is destroyed. When we call him, Shafi doesn't even ask what country we're going to. He's at our door in less than half an hour, with nothing but a briefcase full of papers that show his military work. So it's uh, just after five in the morning, and we are getting ready to leave here and try our luck getting to the airport. There was already a crowd forming at the gate by the time we got there. My heart was pounding. How would we all push through? So we just managed to get into the airport. I, I, I honestly can't even begin to describe the scene. So many people just crushing and pushing each other and screaming and children shrieking and... Uh, it's just awful. It's just absolutely awful. And... Um, Oh, it's just like so much desperation and no information for people, lack of clarity about the whole process. Over the next six hours, we're funneled through a series of endless checkpoints. It's a blisteringly hot day, and there are lots of families trying to get out. We see soldiers handing them little strips of cardboard to try to fan their babies and protect them from the sun. Shafi, how are you feeling? I'm glad to get in inside, but uh, honestly, I don't feel good because you saw the situation, you saw the people, you saw the outside situation, that how disaster, how horrible is that? How are you feeling about, you know, embarking on a new life as a refugee? Yeah, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm glad that I'm getting their safety. I don't think we are safe here. Last night I was, I didn't slept because I was uh, wondering if I didn't get into the airport, then what, what shall I do, what will I do? And so I'm glad and hopefully my new life will bring me happiness to me. It's 3 a.m. on Saturday by the time we actually manage to get on a plane. It's a military C-17 that doesn't have any seats, just a huge cold cargo bay. There are 300 of us roughly, and we all get packed in, standing, and then we're instructed to sit on the floor at the same time so there's enough space for everybody to sit. It's too loud to talk, but I can see Shafi is getting emotional. He's grateful to be out, but what next? I imagine a lot of Afghans on the plane feel the same way. This bizarre mixture, the relief of leaving and knowing you're beyond fortunate to escape, but then a sense of abandoning your home and a way of life. Shafi risked his life to work with the Americans. He bought into the idea of democracy. But now... Afghanistan's 20-year experiment with democracy is all but over. A few weeks later, I was able to return. By then, the Taliban had installed an all-male government. 
and women's rights were quickly declining. From sixth grade and above, boys were summoned back to school. Girls were not. Many brave women continued to protest. Some were beaten and arrested. And yet, I saw many acts of quiet resistance. A woman going to the office every day. A woman driving a taxi. A 16-year-old girl studying at home. Fauzia Kufi was right when she told me this generation is different. These small acts of great courage tell me the story isn't over yet. Tug of War is a CNN Audio original series production. Megan Marcus is our executive producer and Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Our podcast producer is Emily Liu. Our associate producers are Alex Stern, Nathan Miller, and Xavier Lopez. Story editing by Tim Lister and mixing by Francisco Monroy. On the ground reporting by me, Brent Swales, William Bonnet, and Najibullah Qureshi. With support from Miriam Annenberg, David Lindsay, Chip Grabo, Kelly Slade, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, Rafina Ahmed, Lisa Namaral, and Courtney Coop. New episodes of Tug of War drop weekly, so do follow us wherever you get your podcasts, and please give us a rating and a review. It helps others find the show. I'm Clarissa Ward. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.